This is a Scream Queen production. Serial City, USA. Sounds like a good time, right? This urban metropolis, located where the Battle Creek and Kalamazoo Rivers converge, has a strange and fascinating history. Named after a bloody battle between natives and 19th century land surveyors, Battle Creek was the birthplace of Seventh-day Adventists and a vital part of the Underground Railroad. It was also home to the Kelloggs, a family of eccentric inventors and entrepreneurs who would go on to rule the world of breakfast foods. But before their worldwide fame came the sanitarium, and the questionable deaths, and the fires. And after their downfall came the complicated legacy that would continue to result in tragedy for decades to come. Cereal is Battle Creek's lifeblood, but it's also been the root cause of bloodshed many times over. I'm Jen Carpenter, the host of So Dead Podcast. In this eight-part series, I will share with you stories of murder and mayhem from Serial City. Some so outlandish, you'll find yourself choking on your corn pops. Welcome to the Serial Killer Chronicles, a So Dead miniseries. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Serial Killer Chronicles. This is a serialized podcast, which means you should listen to the episodes in order. So if you have not listened to the previous episodes, please go do that now. I will be here when you get back. All right, let's snap, crackle, pop. Part four, the Serial King. At this point in the show, you guys probably feel like you know more than you ever wanted to about Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. I know I do. But here's something you may not know. His is not the signature on that box of frosted flakes in your pantry. That actually belongs to his younger brother, Will Keith Kellogg. In fact, for a long time, Will's full signature was on the box, W.K. Kellogg, along with the claim, the original bears this signature. Will was born on April 7, 1860, the youngest son of John Preston and Anne Jeanette Kellogg. He was eight years Dr. Kellogg's junior, so the family was already living in Battle Creek and heavily involved with the Seventh-day Adventists by the time Will came onto the scene. Although he and the doctor grew up in the same household, their upbringings couldn't have been more different. Will's mother, Anne, was John Sr.'s second wife. John Sr. and his first wife, Mary, had five children together. While the children were still very young, Mary contracted tuberculosis and was bedridden. During this time, she and John hired the teenage daughter of a local blacksmith to help out with the house and her children. Her name was Anne Jeanette Stanley. On September 27, 1841, just days before her 30th birthday, Mary succumbed to tuberculosis, leaving her 35-year-old husband a widower. Now, being a single parent with five young children just is not really feasible even in today's world. I mean, people do it, but it is not easy. doesn't matter if you're mom or dad. But a single dad with five kids in the mid-1800s. If the Kellogg family had any chance of making it, these kids needed a new mom. So John Sr. went out and got them one. On March 29, 1842, six months after his wife's death, John Sr. hitched his horses to his wagon early in the morning hours and told his children, I expect to bring someone home with me. He returned later that evening, and the children were ecstatic to see their former nanny, Anne. As they hugged her and fussed over her, John Sr. told them, You must not call her Anne, you must call her mother, for she is your mother now. 
And that was that. Anne raised John Sr.'s children as if they were her own, and she also gave birth to 11 children who were her own. 11. By the time Will was born, Dr. Kellogg, who was still just John Harvey at the time, had solidly earned the title of Mama's Boy. As such, there wasn't really any room for Will. He grew up feeling unloved and unworthy. He and his older brother were polar opposites. Whereas Dr. Kellogg was charismatic and vivacious, funny and quick-witted, Will was quiet and socially awkward. He later described himself as a miserable child who never learned to play. This is really sad. He hated his older brother, and the future doctor was verbally and physically abusive to Will, always picking on him and tattling on him. Will also hated school. He was slow to read, and his teachers and parents thought he was dim-witted. What Will would discover at the age of 20, when he had his first eye test, was that he wasn't dumb at all. He was just severely nearsighted. So it wasn't that he couldn't read, it was that he couldn't see. And once he could see, he soared. One of the few things Will didn't hate was numbers. The number seven was his favorite. He was the seventh son, born on the seventh day of the week, on the seventh day of the month of April, and his last name had seven letters. As an adult, he would only stay on the seventh floor of high-rise hotels, and all of his vehicles had license plates that ended with the number seven. Will was said to have an expressionless face, maybe because he couldn't make out the expressions on other people's faces until he was 20. But because of this, he was considered to be cold and uncaring, but he actually had a really big heart, secretly. Much of his time and money as an adult was spent on philanthropic endeavors, so Dr. Kellogg was the likable one, but maybe didn't always have the best motives, whereas Will was the genuine one, but people couldn't see past his perma-scowl to notice it. Or maybe he learned that coldness from his parents. While all of the Kellogg children had different experiences growing up, the one thing they agreed on was that their father was very reserved and never paid any of them much mind. With the exception of her affection for her favorite son, their mother was much the same way. At the same time, though, Mr. and Mrs. Kellogg did good things in the world. They were station agents for Battle Creek's Underground Railroad, the danger they put themselves in to help others left a lasting impression on all of their children. They were good charitable people. Uh, They worked hard to support their family. That was their love language, I guess. They just had a hard time showing that love outwardly to the people who needed to see it the most, their children. In his later years, Will was much that same way with his own family. When Will was six, he started working for the family broom factory. When he was 18, he moved to Texas to work at a broom factory there. I don't know why you would move across the country just to go work at another broom factory. I kind of feel like a broom's a broom. But Will quickly decided that he was not a Texas boy, and he moved back home to Battle Creek the following year. In 1880, when he was 20, Will made three important decisions that would shape the rest of his life. He enrolled in classes at Parsons Business College in Kalamazoo. He began courting a young woman by the name of Ella Osborne Davis, and he started working for his older brother at the San. Before we get into Will's role at the San, because that's really where the bread and butter of this story lies, let's talk about his personal life a little bit. 
he and Ella, who went by Puss, don't ask me why she went by Puss. I don't know why. It is a terrible nickname, but I'm going to use it because Dr. Kellogg also married a woman named Ella, and I don't want things to get super confusing. So Will and Puss got married on November 3rd, 1880, just a few months after they started dating. They bought a modest home on Champion Street, not far from the sanitarium, and they set about raising a family. Their first child, a son, Carl, was born in 1881. Their second son, John, was born in 1883. And their third son, W.K. Jr., was born in 1885 but died just a few years later at the age of four. Their only daughter, Elizabeth, was born in 1888, and then their youngest child, Irving, was born in 1894, but he did not live to see his first birthday. Will was not as extreme as his eccentric older brother, and he was much, much more practical and level-headed. Like his parents, he wasn't warm or affectionate, but he took good care of his family. He wasn't a devout Christian, and he didn't often attend church, but he prayed every night before bed. He didn't follow a strict diet. He was mindful of what he ate, but he still ate meat and indulged in sweets. Just not at the sand. Could you imagine? Extra enemas for you today, sir. He wasn't quite as fanatical about animals as his brother was, or about anything really, but he did love horses. One of his few joys as a child was spending time with his favorite horse, Old Spot. One day when he was still very young, he came home from school only to find out that his father had sold the horse to a neighbor. He never recovered from that loss, so when he was older and he had the money, he bought himself a horse. Several horses, actually. He ran an 800-acre Arabian horse ranch at his California estate that was one of the finest in the country. But that came much later on. Will was first hired into the sand as his brother's assistant. In 1880, Will was 20 years old, and Dr. Kellogg, who was 28, had been running the facility for about four years. The brothers still didn't get along, and never would, but the doctor trusted his brother, so he relied on him for everything. He put Will in charge of the publishing company and the day-to-day operations at the San. The doctor was the showman, but Will was the one running the show. But still, the doctor never gave Will a title. Not vice president of operations or junior partner, nothing. Will worked seven years before he was granted his first vacation and was paid just $9 a week, even though he worked over 100 hours most weeks. He didn't even get his own office until he'd been at the sand for over a decade, and that was little more than a glorified utility closet. Despite everything Will did for his brother, Dr. Kellogg still enjoyed humiliating him, just as he had when they were children. Every day, Will shined the doctor's shoes and trimmed his beard. Dr. Kellogg often rode a bicycle around the Sands campus, and he would make Will run along beside him and dictate his thoughts. He made Will join him in the bathroom for his five times daily bowel movements so that Will could write down his ideas as they came to him. For the thousands of people that Dr. Kellogg tortured over the years with his strange contraptions and strict regiments, he tortured his brother most of all. Will worked nights, weekends, holidays. He was constantly at the doctor's beck and call. The strangest thing is, through all of this, Will absolutely hated his brother, so he wasn't doing any of this out of brotherly love. But he stayed. For over 20 years, he did Dr. Kellogg's bidding for him. And it paid off in the end, I suppose. 
because when Dr. Kellogg had his dream of flaked cereal, it was Will that he entrusted to help make it happen. No one disputes that flaked cereal was Dr. Kellogg's idea, but how that idea was brought to fruition is another matter, as all parties involved told different stories. The story Dr. Kellogg told was simple and very self-serving, naturally. He said that one night, about 3 a.m., he was awakened by a phone call from a patient. He took the call, and as he was getting ready to go back to bed, he remembered that he'd been dreaming of making flaked cereal. So the next morning, he got up, boiled some wheat, ran it through his wife's rolling machine, scraped it off the rollers with a knife, and baked it in the oven. Voila, wheat flakes, which would later become the much more popular cornflakes, followed by the even more popular frosted flakes which Dr. Kellogg would hate because he hated sugar, so it's probably a good thing that he died long before Frosted Flakes were unleashed on the world. According to Ella Kellogg, she... Ella Kellogg, that's weird to say. According to Ella, she and her husband had been trying to come up with a flaked cereal recipe for a while and just couldn't quite get it right. And it was she who suggested that the dough be rolled out as thin as possible. And she who suggested that the doctor design a set of rollers that turned via crank, kind of like the old water ringers that were used to dry clothes. She said that one day while they were working on their wheat flake recipe, the doctor was called away from the house to treat a patient at the sand. He left a batch of dough out while he was gone, and when he returned the next day, it had gone stale. He fed it through the rollers anyway, just to see what would happen, and the flakes came out perfect, just as he'd seen them in his dream. Will's version of how flaked cereal was invented is completely different. According to him, the invention was a 50-50 partnership between two brothers, and Ella Kellogg played no role, not even the offering up of her kitchen. Will said the first successful batch of flaked cereal was created in the Sands kitchen. His story goes like this. One Friday night, after a long week of work, the two brothers were working in the kitchen on their flaked cereal recipe, and they decided to give up right in the middle of a batch and go home to get some rest. Will put the dough into a container so they could pick back up where they left off, and the brothers returned to the kitchen on Sunday, so a couple days later, and when they took the dough from its container, they discovered it was a bit moldy, so they put it through the rollers, they baked it anyway, and it came out as perfectly crispy flakes, if not a little green. Whatever story is true, wheat flakes were born in late summer of 1894. Cornflakes soon followed. A year later, the cereal was served at the sand for the first time, and the guests ate it up. Literally. While Dr. Kellogg was simply happy to add another health food to the sand's menu, Will, by now a successful businessman, saw the true potential of their creation. Flaked cereal could make them millions if they added ingredients like sugar and malt, if they engaged in a mass marketing campaign, if they went all in on the breakfast food business. But Dr. Kellogg wanted no part of that. He was a serious doctor who wore a cockatoo on his shoulder, running a serious wellness retreat where grown adults had to sing a song about chewing before every meal. And he worried that going into the breakfast business was going to ruin his reputation. Oddly, he wasn't worried about his overt racism or the mutilation of children's sensitive bits affecting his legacy, though. So the Kellogg Brothers cornflakes were marketed as a health food only. Meanwhile, word got out that they'd found a way to turn 60 cents worth of wheat into $12 worth of gold, and the wolves descended. A serial gold rush of sorts began in Battle Creek, 
over 100 cereal companies popped up in the city between 1888 and 1905. One of the most successful offenders was Charlie Post, a 36-year-old failed businessman who was treated at the San for chronic pain and auto intoxication. He was apparently prone to nervous breakdowns. Wheelchair-bound and in very poor health, Post was given a tour of the Sands' kitchens and treated to a demonstration of the cereal-making process, much to Will's chagrin. Predictably, Post left the Sand, bought himself a plot of land in Battle Creek, and began stealing all of the Kellogg's ideas. He first tried to open his own wellness sanitarium, but that was a huge failure. He then copied several of the Sands' recipes and marketed them as his own under the Postum Cereal Company brand, now known as Post Foods, which is still around if you like cereals like Grape Nuts and Alphabets. The answer is no. Nobody likes those. I do love me some Cocoa Wheats, though. And even though I'm not a fan because I feel like they get soggy way too quickly, I do realize that people love Fruity Pebbles and Cocoa Pebbles, so we'll give them credit for those too, I guess. Post launched a successful ad campaign that he called The Road to Wellville, which was later the name of a satirical book and subsequent movie about the serial Gold Rush in Battle Creek. I haven't read the book, but I do love the movie so much that we're going to talk about it in a later episode. Dr. Kellogg didn't seem to mind too much that Post was stealing his ideas, at least not at first, but it drove Will crazy. Everyone was making money off of the Kellogg's creations except for the Kellogg's, and this was the catalyst for Will finally breaking free from his brother, the pursuit of a serial fortune. All of that money and success couldn't save Charlie Post, though, and on May 9th, 1914, he sat down in his favorite chair, put a shotgun in his mouth, and pulled the trigger with his toe. He died just shy of his 60th birthday. The Kellogg's did not mourn him. In 1905, after over 20 years of faithful service to his older brother, Will made the decision to leave the sanitarium, and he offered to take the cereal business with him. His timing was perfect. Dr. Kellogg was in danger of defaulting on the loans he'd taken out to rebuild the sand after the fire, and he didn't see a whole lot of value in the cereal business because there are now over a 100 other companies in Battle Creek making the same thing. So he let it go pretty easily which, quite honestly, was one of the craziest things he ever did. And he did a lot of crazy things. On February 19th, 1906, Will founded the Battle Creek Toasted Corn Flake Company, which later became the Kellogg's Toasted Corn Flake Company, and is now simply known as the Kellogg Company. He revolutionized the mass production and marketing of food and blew all of his imposters out of the water. Soon, his factories were producing 120,000 boxes of cornflakes per day. But it wasn't all smooth sailing. On July 4, 1907, like many of the other buildings owned by the Kellogg's, Will's cereal factory burned to the ground under suspicious circumstances. Like his brother, he rebuilt. Bigger and better. But the next blow came from much closer to home. If John Harvey Kellogg was one of the most successful, beloved doctors in the country— and he was. Will Keith Kellogg was one of the world's most successful industrialists. And that drove the doctor crazy. So he got petty. In 1908, the year Will began operating under the name the Kellogg's Toasted Cornflake Company, Dr. Kellogg began mass marketing breakfast cereal, the very thing he refused to allow Will to do for over a decade. 
And he didn't do it under his sanitarium foods label or through the Sanitas Food Company. No, he created yet a third health food company, the Kellogg's Food Company of Battle Creek. But Will was already marketing breakfast cereal out of Battle Creek using the Kellogg name, a right he paid a lot of money for, and the town wasn't big enough for the both of them. So not only did Dr. Kellogg mirror his brother's company name, but his packaging was nearly identical to Will's, right down to the Kellogg signature on the box. So in 1910, Will filed a lawsuit requesting a permanent injunction against his brother's use of the Kellogg name for the purpose of selling breakfast foods. The case went all the way to the Michigan Supreme Court and lasted 10 years. Their arguments were these. John claimed that he had invented cornflakes, which was true. He also claimed that he was the more famous of the two brothers, and his face was synonymous with the Kellogg name, which was also true. Will claimed that his brother had signed away his rights to cornflakes, which was true, and that by 1920, when the case reached the Supreme Court, the Kellogg name was much more well-known for breakfast foods than it was for the sand, which again was true. In the end, the court sided with Will, and the brothers, then in their 60s, rarely spoke again. Will's star continued to soar. The Kellogg Company grew in ways he'd never imagined, and after decades of humiliating, thankless work, he was able to live out his golden years, a rich man, raising his horses, and enjoying his family. To the extent that a man who enjoys nothing can enjoy things, at least. The doctor, however, fell hard. He'd been excommunicated by the church, lost out on the Kellogg cereal fortune, was in failing health, and by the 1930s was in the final stages of losing the sand. He'd had to step away due to health issues, and the doctors that took over had very different views on health and wellness. They ditched the vegan menu, and they brought back meat and processed foods. They even smoked. Indoors. In a hospital. A wellness hospital. The San was no longer a one-of-a-kind health and wellness retreat. It was just another hospital. Then came the receivership in 1933, and finally, the sale of the facility to the U.S. government in 1942. During those last difficult years, Dr. Kellogg reached out to his ridiculously rich younger brother under the guise of mending fences, but always wound up asking Will to bail him out financially so that he could salvage his hospital and his reputation. But Will would have none of it. In fact, he actively participated in the Seventh-day Adventists' attempt to buy back the sand, which was ultimately unsuccessful. Meanwhile, the doctor's descent into madness continued. He began playing show-and-tell with his stool samples. This is not a metaphor. He would literally take a container into the bathroom with him and emerge with a fresh stool sample, which he then forced whoever had the misfortune of being in the immediate vicinity to smell, because the doctor was very proud of his odorless poop. There's a sentence I never thought I would say. It was pretty much all he had left in the end. (laughs) I don't know. He took to exercising and going out in public virtually naked, wearing what amounted to little more than a loincloth, Will was so angered and embarrassed by his brother's behavior that he actually tried to file an injunction to make Dr. Kellogg wear clothes. Will's lawyers, wisely, cautioned him against it. Could you even imagine those headlines? 
The brothers last saw one another on October 3rd, 1942, when Dr. Kellogg once again asked Will for money to try to save the sand. The meeting ended in a heated argument. A couple months later, on December 14, 1942, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg died from complications of pneumonia at the age of 91, just nine years shy of his goal to live to be 100. Always one to follow in his brother's footsteps, serial king Will Keith Kellogg also died at the age of 91 on October 6, 1951. Following his death, Will's body was put on display at the Kellogg Production Factory for 24 hours so employees could pay their respects. In a food factory. How about just giving them the day off to attend the funeral, maybe? The Kellogg legacy, of course, lives on. Today, the Kellogg Company rakes in $13 billion in annual sales, selling ridiculously unhealthy foods that would have both the doctor and his brother rolling in their graves. And for all of the strange contraptions and devices that Dr. Kellogg invented to torment his patients, it was actually a simple utility knife from Will's cereal factory that resulted in one of the most brutal murders Battle Creek has ever seen. In the next episode, we'll discuss the case that was once referred to as Michigan's number one murder mystery. My sources for today's episode were Howard Markle's book, The Kellogg's, bet you didn't see that one coming, an article written by Terry Gross for NPR titled How the Battling Kellogg's Revolutionized American Breakfast, Wikipedia, Find a Grave, and Newspapers.com. The Serial Killer Chronicles is an eight-part miniseries with new episodes released every Thursday. If you've enjoyed this show, please consider giving So Dead, my podcast about the weird goings-on in Michigan, a listen. You can find both The Serial Killer Chronicles and So Dead wherever you get your podcasts, and please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. You can find The Serial Killer Chronicles on Facebook and So Dead on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also reach me by email at sodadpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jen Carpenter. Thank you again for joining me today, and I'll see you soon. Until then, stay sweet, mini-wheat. <laughs>